0: Good morning again, beloved. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word and your spirit and your people, that we can read your word by your spirit because of Jesus with your people. God, this is your good design and intention, that we would be here together. Lord, open our eyes to your word. Let us see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would, open with me to Matthew chapter 2, not 20, Matthew chapter 20, we're a long way from chapter 2. If you're new with us or if you need a refresher, we are taking vignettes through the book of Matthew up until Holy Week uh, throughout Lent. And these vignettes in Matthew are, we are watching Jesus on the road to the cross, This is our series Death March. We call it Death March because we believe all Christians are called to be on a death march. Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So all of us are on this death march where we are saying that we are aligned with him, even if it means we're shamed, viewed as criminals, whatever it means, we are picking up our cross and we are following him. Whatever that means for us. So where we've been, uh, we've been kind of hopping around in Matthew, but we started with Jesus when he first told his disciples that he was going to die. Remember, Jesus tells them that he must suffer and die in Jerusalem and then be raised again. And Peter, who was often the one who usually blabbed his mouth, Peter tells Jesus, may it never be. May what you, what you said, I'm not going to let it happen. I will not let you die. And what does Jesus do? Jesus calls him Satan. That's the last thing that I want to be called by Jesus, is that you are the devil, because you are acting according to the devil's plans, not God's. Because what they couldn't really understand was, Jesus predicting his death wasn't saying, well, throw in the towel, we've lost. But he was saying, I'm on my way to win. That, that, that victory looks like dying for my enemies instead of killing my enemies. See, though we're on this walk with Jesus, it, the disciples are on this walk with Jesus, but they're going to be continually confused. Peter was just the one who was willing to say it out loud. From there, we jump to Jesus with his disciples. The disciples are asking, which is often at the top of their mind. Jesus is coming, preaching about this kingdom. The disciples ask, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom? That's what they're worried about. That's the issue, is who will be the great? Jesus, there's 12 of us here. Not all 12 of us can be the greatest. And so Jesus brings in a child. And Jesus says, whoever becomes like this child is the greatest in my kingdom. A child offered nothing to the socioeconomic political reality of Rome and oppressed Israel. Nothing to offer. Total dependence. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you need to see yourself like a child. Nothing to offer. Total dependence. From there, Jesus is approached. Uh, We saw this last week by the rich young ruler, who the rich young ruler comes to Jesus uh, and as a pastor Wayne preached, asking Jesus, how may I earn eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you must keep the commandments. And, you know, the rich young ruler says, well, of course I have kept the commandments. And Jesus knows you did not keep them all. We notice... The, when Jesus says, what are the commandments, the rich young ruler responds, you know, or they have this inner, inner exchange It's all about loving my neighbor, but what Jesus doesn't mention is, you may have no other gods before me. Jesus, because that rich young ruler would have to admit, I've already lost. And so when Jesus says, give up everything you have and follow me, he was coming against the other gods before God. And Jesus is doing this intentionally in front of all his disciples, who Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they are concerned with power. They are concerned with greatness. After the rich young ruler leaves, we missed this. This was between sermons. We didn't pick this to be one of the vignettes. But Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard worker, men working in vineyards. And there's some men that show up early in the morning in the vineyard and they're working hard. There are other men who come later to work at the vineyard. They couldn't find other work. The master pays the early risers and the latecomers the same. And they're indignant about it. But the master says, it's, it's up to me what reward or payment I'll dole out. It's none of your business. Then we get to our passage today. So keep, so keep this in mind. Jesus is dealing over and over again, I'm going to die, and that's what my kingdom looks like. And then he tells this parable that they're all going to get the same payment, and then we get to our passage today. Starting in verse 17. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus tw- took the twelve disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Jesus once again, predicts his death. Between all of these teachings, Jesus will, at least three times, tell them, just so you know, I'm going to die. Jesus adds more details now. Jesus tells them, not only will he be arrested by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but those leaders will hand them over to the Gentiles. See, Jerusalem, with all of Israel, is under experts experts. The ancient Roman Empire were experts on authoritarianism and domination. The key to this massive Roman Empire was their military. Peace through strength. You rule hard, you dominate, you subjugate the people, If they don't bow, you either crucify them or bring them back to Rome as slaves. No exceptions. They ruled through their military. They were really good at at controlling and showing up on these massive war horses with their bronze eagles and with these, these strong soldiers who were experts at killing and torturing. And that's how they kept the empire in line. And Jesus is telling them that Not only will I be taken in by the religious leaders, but they're going to give me to those Roman oppressors, and they will crucify me. No doubt. We're we're pretty good at hiding death in our modern day. We're excellent at hiding execution. It was obvious in Rome. This was actually a tactic in Rome. See, Rome didn't have these nice commercials. I know they didn't have TV TV. But they didn't have these nice, smiling, polished commercials to get people to to support their campaign or whatever it was. Rome's tactic was just, hey, if you don't do what we say, you'll be like one of these guys hanging up on a cross. You'll experience our torture. But it's because we love you and we want what's best for you. That would be the Roman thought. And Jesus is saying, that's going to be my fate. Now you notice, or you will notice. Let's continue. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him. These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Imagine that you just told people, hey, I'm going to die when we get to Jerusalem. And then someone comes up and does the, so anyway, so so anyway, can my sons have the highest place of power in your kingdom? When Jesus just said he was going to die, and and that's the only response. Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. The disciples give him nothing. Now, it's perhaps that the last time someone Like, check Jesus on this, I'm going to die stuff. Jesus called him the devil. So maybe they were thinking, he's just going to say it, we're not going to go there with him. Charles Spurgeon had a thought that maybe they didn't truly understand what he was saying. That maybe they thought it was perhaps metaphorical. That maybe maybe they thought it's just like those, like, you know, they're, they're hunting for the treasure, and at the end, the treasure was the journey that you had and the friends you made along the way. So maybe they're thinking, Jesus saying, he's going to die. This is just a metaphorical, just metaphorical death, but he really is going to take out Pontius Pilate. He really is going to dethrone the emperor. We'll have this thing back, hopefully. That's what they're hoping for. But they, they ignore the rest of what Jesus is telling them. They are just on the road to Jerusalem. And so for our purposes in our study, we're, we're, we have this on the road to Jerusalem march with Jesus. We know it's on the way to death. For them, this is just on the way for celebration. This is holiday. When Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. The disciples are thinking, yeah, we left Galilee. Some of the moms are coming with us. We are on our way to Jerusalem. This group is on their way for one of the three pilgrimage festivals in Israel. This is Pesach or Passover. You would go to Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. So this was expected. We live near Jerusalem. We're going to go to Jerusalem for Pesach, for Passover. But Jesus knows they're not just going to celebrate Passover. He is going to be Passover. The Passover celebration was a celebration instituted by the Lord for the Jewish people for them to remember his Exodus, his leading them out of slavery to Egypt, which is really just another Rome. The Egypt that they had total oppression and domination over Israel, but God pummels Israel with all of these plagues and the final plague is that the angel of death will come for the firstborn of every house, except for those that mark the frame of their door With the blood of the Lamb. Jesus knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be the Lamb, that his blood will cover us so that the angel of death, God's retribution, God's condemnation will pass over. Not because we were good, because we've kept the law, because we've oppressed God, because we've achieved, because we did awesome, great things but just because of the blood, because of the blood of the lamb. Jesus is also going to be the firstborn son who would die for all other firstborn sons. He's going to be Passover. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I believe it, chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, has been Sacrificed. They think we're just going for Passover. Jesus is thinking I'm going to be the Passover. He's on his way to his death so that your sins would be covered by his blood. For anyone who applies the blood, anyone who says, I believe it, your sins are forgiven. God's retribution, condemnation is passed over. His disciples are so thick-headed. They don't see it. And we might know we're not much better than his disciples are. I think often we take things Jesus said and we think maybe maybe by that he really means, when he says love your enemies, he means, well, like, like the really bad ones. <laughs> and not the ones that like, not, not, not Susan from accounting, like not the ones that really just get on my nerves, but love all of your enemies, any of them. But we, we, we do this with what Jesus has said. Jesus keeps telling them that greatness is like a child, that, that the rich, it's hard for them to enter the kingdom of God, that he's saying all of these things about power and about status. But then comes James and John's mom. And what... Other gospel accounts they have it read is James and John coming to say this themselves. So basically, James and John wanted to ask Jesus, can we sit on your right and the left? But instead, they sent mommy because they were too afraid to go. So Salome, the gospel of Mark tells us her name is Salome, has been with this crew since Galilee. She has had the privilege of hearing Jesus say what greatness is. She's had the privilege of sending away, seeing Jesus send away the rich young ruler. And she asks Jesus, she insists that Jesus promises her that her sons would sit on his right and on his left. Proximity to a king, and she knows this very well, is power. The highest seats of power are on the right and on the left of the king. So when it says that our Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has the highest seat of authority. James and John and Mama, they're thinking maybe we could get a little action. Maybe we could get in on that high seats of power. What, we've, what we can notice is when Wayne preached, he already told them, all of the disciples, you will sit on thrones. He's already saying, you will have a throne in my kingdom. But that's not enough for James and John. Don't just give us thrones. We want the highest. So, so I imagine this. They hear this vineyard thing about, not for us, though. We've been here. They get the, paid the same, and they're like, no, no, no. Not for us, though. We've been here since the beginning. We are the OG. We started from the bottom. Now we're here with Jesus. Surely we should have the highest places of authority. But Jesus says, there are some that show up late that they get the same as you. Because this isn't about how long you've been with me. See, the Christian life, unfortunately, isn't about longevity. Because there are some people who identify as Christians for a whole lot of time who look more like Rome than they look like Jesus. And I want to say, I wanted to say this at some point today, and I'll say it now. I am extremely sorry for those who have been hurt by people who call themselves Christian and they look more like domination. I want you to know that's not Jesus. Don't don't throw him out over people that look more like Rome than look like Jesus, because that's not him. So, Mama Salome comes. She asks, and they sit on the right and on the left. This is Jesus' response. Let's look together. Verse 22. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, he directs his answer to James and John because he knows this is really coming from them. But they just. You know, I'm sure Mama Salome, she makes the dentist appointment for James and John still. And it's like, Jesus called them sons of thunder because James and John, there was a town that rejected Jesus and they wanted to blast them with fire from heaven, but they can't even get the gall or presumption to ask Jesus about this. Mama's got to come make the appointment. Mama's got to go with them to the grocery store. Whatever, Whatever it is, they were asking. So Jesus answers them. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The cup was associated with experience. We have uh, the Lord is my shepherd passage where the, the cup, my cup overflows. The cup is also associated with wrath and suffering. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of his fury. For Jesus, this cup drags the cup that causes people to stagger. For Jesus, this cup is a cup of suffering. Jesus is saying, you you want my throne, but can you handle my, my cup that I drink? Now, this is the same cup that in chapter 27, Jesus is in the garden, so agonized that he's sweating blood. He's saying, Father, let this cup pass. But, not my will, but yours be done. This cup was betrayal, mockery, other condemnation from other people, suffering, obedience, servanthood, and even death. Jesus is saying, you want the crown, but can you take the cross? Can you handle the cross you 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 want the crown just because you've followed me, you haven't even listened. You haven't listened to me. See, what what are we looking for from Jesus? Overall, the church, what, what is the church looking for from Jesus? Are we looking for the kingdom, but in a we have authority, we have position, we have power right here and right now? Or do we want Jesus even if it means suffering and dying? Even if it means serving the lowly of the lowly? Now we need to know, they cannot drink the same exact cup as Jesus. They will drink a cup of suffering and shame and betrayal and death. There's only one who can atone for your sins. It needs to be said that though we will suffer and we will die, you cannot suffer enough to atone for your sins. You cannot dying for your faith will not atone for your sins. Actually, your your sins they do require suffering and they do require death, but only one can pay it, and his name is Jesus. His righteous suffering and death. He was the Lamb that that blood has covered over your sins. You cannot follow Jesus intensely enough, forsake life enough, deny yourself enough to atone for your sins. But here's the invitation. Because your sins have been atoned for, follow him. Have the motivation that because the lamb died for me, I'll go with him wherever he goes, even if it looks like the road to Jerusalem. Jerusalem like we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, even if it looks like the Via Dolorosa, the, this walk of suffering where I'm carrying my cross and I'm burying it. But his death, it pays. Jesus has more for us to sit around and wait for the kingdom or to, to try to get as much kingdom now as we can. You don't need to build mass amounts of wealth. You don't need the highest positions of power. You have a kingdom that's coming for you. You don't need it. You don't need that. You can, you can bear what's coming, what's happening now because you're suffering and you're, you're putting others first and you're serving and, and you're being selfless, as painful as it is, You can bear that because you know there's coming a day where the kingdom will be here in its fullest reality. You can bear a little bit now, and Jesus will be with you. Jesus tells them, you will. Notice, Jesus says, are you able to drink? Immediately they say, we are able. Be really cautious of people in the Bible who when God gives them a question like that, they answer really fast. It makes us think of Israel when uh, they come and God gives them the Ten Commandments and, and they're like, yup, we do. We got it. We, let's do it. We'll obey. And, and Moses goes up to talk to God some more and not much time has passed and they've smelted all their gold and they've made this golden calf because they were freaking out that Moses wasn't coming back down. And they needed a way to worship. They just said we won't make an idol. And what do they do? They make an idol. So maybe even your, I want your answer to be yes for Jesus. But maybe think about it. What Jesus would say is count the cost. But then what, be totally aware of what Christianity is really about. Like, There's a lot of bad PR saying that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And everything will go great. The son of man was homeless and you're following him. Like just, I want you to know what you're signing up for. I I really do. I do. Jesus tells them, you will drink the cup. You will drink from the cup of suffering. John will be dipped in boiling oil, tradition tells us. He won't die, but they're going to sure try. And because they can't kill him, they're going to, Put him on an island called Patmos where he has to live and in exile. James, his brother, is the first martyr of the church. The emperor took his head for following, or Herod, Herod took his head for following Jesus. So Jesus tells them, You say you're able, and you will. You will taste suffering and death for me, you will taste denial. In servanthood, for me, you will indeed drink the cup. But to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Notice Jesus, who is name above all names, king above all kings, absolute power and authority. Paul will tell us in Colossians that everything was made by Jesus and through Jesus, and for Jesus, and through the whole universe consists by him, that, that it's Jesus that holds every atom together. But when he came to this earth, he came in such humility and submission that he's saying, that's not even my place to decide. Jesus will even tell them, I, the Son of Man doesn't know the day of his return. So listen, y'all, neither do you, if we can say that. Now, Jesus does say that you will know when spring is coming. You'll know when the fig tree starts to bloom. You can tell seasonal changes. I'll say that. But you don't know the date. Neither did he. Jesus came in such submission that even to who would sit on his right and his left, he said, it's up to the Father. Now, if God can do that, surely we can. If God is willing to submit even to the Father... And if Jesus is the one that's, no one is above him, everyone is beneath him, but he's still willing to go so low to serve the lowest of the low, what's our excuse? We all like to view people as being beneath us. Jesus saw no one is beneath him. When in actuality, he was the only righteous one. He has the deed to the universe, but to him, there was nobody too low. There was no one not worth serving and not worth suffering and dying for to Jesus. But they they don't get it yet. They are looking still for positions of power. But Jesus tells them, you will get it. You're going to give your life. You're going to be willing to die proclaiming of what I've done. And even Salome, she will get it. Salome is going to be one of the women that are at the tomb, that she's preparing Jesus' body. She's anointing Jesus' body after he has died. And she'll be at the tomb where she comes to visit Jesus' tomb, and she will be part of those women that see the resurrected Jesus. She will get it. So be patient with your fellow believers and be patient with yourself We might have twisted and distortive motives now, but James and John, they figured it out. The Lord gave them insight. They they weren't stuck just looking for power, but at that moment, they were so, 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 so wrong. Now, verse 24, it says, when the 10 disciples heard this, notice they're the two, and now here's the other 10, they became indignant with the two brothers. Now, why do we think they became angry? Let me tell you. It wasn't because how insensitive James and John. Jesus just said he's going to die. It was because, wait a second. We want that. How dare you ask? You asked first. It's like, we've all, who has siblings in here? You called shotgun, right? Like, we all know it. Like, I, I know that I called shotgun, but Ryan or Eddie happened to ask my mom first. I called it with them. They talked to mom first. Unfair. Injustice, honestly. So the disciples, they are so upset because James and John and, and Salome come and ask for these places. They're only indignant, not because the disciples thought they were insensitive, not because they were enlightened now and they realized how terrible of a question that was, because they wanted it. They wanted that power. I wonder about Peter. He thought, I'm the rock upon which he'll build his church. Obviously, that's my spot. So Jesus Jesus, corrects all of them. He brings them all close. And this is what he says. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high position acts as tyrants. He's already casted their mind to what the Romans are capable of. Those same ones we talked about that are experts on domination and on authoritarianism, he says, "You know how they rule. That's not my kingdom. That's Satan's kingdom. That's Rome's kingdom. That's not my kingdom. He says it must not be like that among you. That's not the way that my kingdom works. How does it work? On the contrary, whoever wants to become great, imagine their interest is Pete. Whoever wants to become great, if someone stood before you, TED Talk style, and said, Greatness is, everyone is on the edge of their seat wondering, what is it? Whoever wants to be great, maybe James and John are thinking, be like James and John, or be like Peter. Maybe he won't say the child thing again, maybe he'll point me out. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant or slave. Whoever wants to be great isn't to do your best to climb to the top of positions of power to amass wealth and influence, but greatness is to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Imagine, how do you think the world defines greatness? Let me tell you, I looked it up. (laughs) Merriam-Webster says, the quality or state of being great, parentheses, as in size, skill, achievement, or power is greatness. Size, skill, achievement, or power. I thought that was pretty good. I don't think it's a good definition, but that's pretty good at what the world thinks of greatness. Now, if you really want to plumb the depths of what modern American Thoughts of Greatness has, you just go on Twitter, and you hashtag those older than me, that's the pound sign, those younger than me, hashtag, or whatever you changed it to now, I don't know, I can't even keep up, hashtag striving for greatness, all you will find are these stellar, like, jacked athletes getting even more jacked, these incredible feats and competitions. That's greatness. Uh, Political season, we might think greatness is getting that office, getting the high office, or being associated with people, writing the best books, directing the best movies. Now, are any of those things sinful? It's not sinful to hold public office. (laughs) We'll leave that one. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. It's not sinful to become an Olympian. It's not sinful to climb Mount Everest. None of those things are sinful. But Jesus says, that's not true greatness. True greatness is me. Because he says, even the son of man. So this is, this is why the servanthood is greatness, because Jesus did it. He says, even the son of man came not to be served, Though he has every right to be served and worshiped, we should all fall, when we all will, fall on our faces before him. He says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is the price of payment to buy someone out of slavery. Jesus gave his life not only to be your Passover, but also to buy you out of slavery. Because we are all, at our core, enslaved to the world's idea of greatness. The Olympian, the rich man, the president, whatever it is, we, we see those as greatness. And those are wonderful things, but greatness is serving. See, see this, is, this is greatness. Greatness centers around the orbit Of being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and being for Jesus—that's greatness. And now, if 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 that is what your whole life orbits around, even if it's your sports career or your journey into political office, whatever it is, if it revolves around being with Jesus, like Jesus, and for Jesus, that's greatness. So we're not saying greatness is not being an Olympian. Otherwise, I'm great. We're not, we're not saying G, that, that's not physical fee or not having any skills. God gave you those. But if you're going to use those skills, if you're going to use your debate skills or your philosophy skills or your physical, whatever, it, you use those to serve. That's greatness. That, that if all of your goals, how you spend your money, how you do your job, what you do for fun, if all of that is, it has to, orbit around Jesus. Serving like him, living with him, and living for him. That's greatness. Now, there's a lot of people who get to these highest places of success in our world. They got nothing for Jesus. It's not greatness. It's not great. The greatness can be the stay-at-home mom who really loves her kids and is just doing her best to point them to Jesus. It can be the CEO who takes a lower salary so his employees can be paid well, who's incredibly generous with his money because the orbit is Jesus. So I'm not saying that greatness is being poor or that greatness isn't going to the Olympics, but just that the orbit is all centered around Jesus. So that whether you're a president, whether you're a cashier, that whatever, whatever you're doing, that the, the center of gravity is Jesus. That's greatness. That's gra- absolute greatness. So your concern shouldn't be, will I have a position of power? Your concern should be, Jesus, give me strength to serve whatever the cost. Because here, here the problem does come. You can be in a place of influence and be a servant, but the warning to all of us is that the more we try to live like Jesus and for him, that there are going to be some doors that will close. There might be political office that isn't open to you. There might, be, there might be a position on a sports team. There might be things in life that it's not open to you, because you're trying to serve like him, because you're living for him. For he said, the world hated me, don't be surprised when they hate you. And now that's not just the liberal left, it's also the conservative right. The ones that Jesus was talking about that hated him were the scribes and the Pharisees. People from both sides will hate you because you follow Jesus. Now, greatness isn't how well you're liked or how well you're hated, but just simply that whether I'm going to be loved or hated, I'm after Jesus. I'm going to serve like he did. I'm going to love like he did because he has loved me infinitely more than I'll ever be able to. The Apostle Paul, considering his own life, says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In this life, I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The same Apostle Paul also says, Whatever gain that I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, now this is the strange mystery of union with Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now here's the mystery, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrections and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That this this drinking the cup that Jesus drinks, this suffering for him, suffering because you're serving and loving, gives you a greater way of knowing him. As Christians, we will take the same route that Jesus did. And that route was through the cross, through the cross before the crown. The cross always comes before crown, but as you suffer, maybe die and die to yourself, you do know the crown is coming. I don't care where, I don't care what position of authority I have in my kingdom, but I'm gonna be there. I'm going to be with him. Even if I'm not top dog, I'm going to be with him. We were taught at my Bible college about reward systems. That there is, actually, we don't talk about it a lot, different levels of rewards that we will have in the kingdom based upon our service and our faith in Christ now. This isn't a matter of getting in or out, but we will have various crowns and rewards in heaven And now we read in Revelation, those are all to be placed back at his feet. So those are just symbols of our worship. But I was bugged by the different levels of rewards. And I was talking to one of our professors. We were in the car together, Mr. Meisenberg, for those that went to the same school as I did. And I just told him that I was bugged by it. And he told me, Stephen, do you really think that you're going to get there and care? That someone else has more rewards than you are? I really don't think so. Because you'll be there with him. You'll be there with with Jesus in person. You're not going to care whether you sit on his right or on his left. You're just going to be ecstatic that he's there. And that you are with him. The, The Passover lamb, the ransom for your sins. You're with him at last. And tyrants are gone, empires are gone, dictators are gone, and your own sin and your own desire to dominate, it'll be gone. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for our Passover lamb who has paid for all of our sins. Lord, we have been at times, just like James and John, we want power, we want retribution, we want to get even help us be like Jesus, who instead of seeking to get even, died for his enemies, and died for his enemies, including us. Lord, help us live like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.